So I'm going to ask a question here to start us off, and it might seem like a trick question, but I promise it's not. Do you think feelings are important? Okay, I see head nods, and then there might be some people here going, where are you going with that? Feelings, yes. But I would say probably many, most, if not all here, would say feelings are important, but they're not the ultimate definer of reality. And we might be very quick to put that into our statement, but it's not ultimate. Right, I agree with that. And I think we feel that more and sense that more and have that immediate response because we live in a society and a culture that really does elevate feelings beyond pretty much anything else, taking it to the highest rung of importance. As an example, we live in a world where someone would say that their gender is defined more by their feelings than by their biological sex. Now, we could accuse others, um, but I think that we probably fall prey to emphasizing our feelings too high at times, too. Let me just pose some situations. Uh, if you were visiting another church, how, what, what do you use to um, judge the service? Or if you're with another person, what do you use many times to judge that other, maybe that person? A lot of times I think it's we use our feelings to make judgment calls. I didn't feel this or I didn't feel that. Or you just come to church maybe today and you walk away and you're like, I didn't feel anything. Okay? And that becomes like a judgment on whether or not something was good or bad to us. And then we just go to like the most basic question that probably all of us ask almost every day to at least someone. And it's, how are you? And actually, when we say, how are you, what is the word that we assume after you? <laughs> At, before the question mark, I think we assume, we'll say, how are you doing? But what does doing mean? We're not asking, what are you literally doing in the moment? Many times what we're asking is, how are you feeling? Because how you're feeling helps to define things. Now, I'm not suggesting that asking about people's feelings is bad. I'm not saying that talking about your feelings is bad. But I'm saying this because, again, I think that many of us have taken feelings and placed them too high, as though that defines what is true. And the reason why, in part, that I say that that's a problem well, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever had situations before where you felt strongly about something and then you discovered at a later point in time you were wrong? Anybody? I, I really want to see hands here. If you have had that experience, raise your hand, okay? We know our feelings can be deceptive, right? We can be wrong if we base our decisions purely on the feelings. If you are to struggle between truth or feelings, which one wins? Which one should? Truth, right? 
I remember somebody who was in my life that um, some, they were struggling with a certain thing that wasn't true. And they would say, yeah, but I feel like. And I would say to them, it's a really good thing that reality isn't based on your feelings. Because that's not true. But I feel like. Eh. Now, I can say that because actually I, in a very dark, discouraging uh, season of my life with immense anxiety and depression, um, I got to a point, I think the Lord got me to a point, to where I actually began to see that the Apostle James was correct, that sin leads to death. And my, my thinking and my processing was all in dependence on me. That's sin. And I came to this point to where I said, either I am going to die, and I really will at some point with this, or by the Lord's grace, I'm going to fight living on the basis of whatever I feel. And by the Lord's mercy, I started to fight and one of the ways in which I fought, just one of the ways, was actually in relationship to that question, how are you? People would ask me how I was, and I would just dive into all of the things that I saw that were wrong. There's this, there's that, there's this, that, the other thing, and this thing over here, and oh my goodness, and what in the world, and ugh. And it would, it would just feed my depression and my anxieties, right? So for me... I thought through this and I decided if somebody asked me how I'm, how I'm doing, I'm going to say I'm doing well or something like praise the Lord or something in that direction. I really struggled with that, by the way, because I thought to myself, I'm going to be lying to people because I'm not well. But then I would think about the realities of my life. I'm reconciled with God. I have a wonderful wife. I have amazing children. I have so many things to be grateful for. It truly is well with my soul, even though I don't feel like it. Now, side note, some of you I would not give that counsel to. Because for you, you've closed up your emotions so much, put it in a nice box off to the side, and you haven't given emotions their proper place. Okay, I went too far the other way and elevated emotions too high, and I needed to learn to give them their proper place. Okay, but I share this. What I'm trying to emphasize by saying this is that we are more, and reality is more than just what we feel. Okay, Jesus Himself says this. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our what? Heart, soul, mind, strength. We are, to put it this way, divided people. We have divisions of us that are to work together under the sovereign power of God in order to come together in harmony and shine forth his glory, to praise him and to worship him, to unite now, I say all of this, and you say, what does this have to do with Christmas? And what does this have to do with joy? Well, we've already been going through this series of Advent, which is talking about Jesus coming. And we've looked on God's teaching of hope and peace 
And we've seen that those words are not just terms that refer to feelings alone, right? Hope is a steadfast assurance in God's promises. Peace is more than a feeling of calm. It's not less than, but it's definitely more than. Because peace has a name. And Jesus has reconciled us to God, and because of Jesus, we can be reconciled with other people for God's glory until the day we experience wholeness and shalom for all eternity. Well, this this reality is also true with the word joy. Joy isn't just a feeling. If you define joy as primarily a feeling, you miss the richness I'd actually say you miss, or I'll say you strip the depth and beauty of the meaning of joy. So you should be asking yourself, what is joy? What is it then? Is it just a feeling? No. How many of you have ever seen pictures of icebergs in water, and you see the top, and then you also see what's under the water, right? Okay. The top, you see like 10% of the iceberg. If you define joy as a feeling, that's the tip. We want to go underneath and see just how expansive God's joy is. I want to test you, though, when you think of maybe your everyday definition of joy. Can your joy fall in line with this. When things are difficult and hard and maybe even emotionally devastating, does that mean you can't possess joy? Now, that may sound like a radical-sounding question, but I ask it this way because, again, I think we tend to think that negative emotions and joy cannot exist together. But we're going to see today that not only can that be the case, but that has been the case. And it was the case even for our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go into the scriptures and first try to see how God defines joy in the Old and New Testament. And then we're going to see how Jesus fulfills joy. For us. So when I was studying for this sermon, I looked into a Bible dictionary for a word study on the word joy. And it said there that joy is closely related to gladness and happiness, although joy is more a state of being than emotion. Well, you look at this, joy, it has here feeling as a part of the definition, but you notice the last part? It's more a state of being than it is an emotion. The state of being is saying that joy is more related to ultimate reality than the feelings that flow from the ultimate reality or from however we perceive reality. What is ultimate reality then? What, what is the state of being that joy exists in? The dictionary went on. Joy is closely related in the Old Testament 
In the Old Testament, joy is closely related to victory over one's enemies. Okay? So we have some examples. I'll share with you just some today from the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, uh, we read of this situation. I'll have it on the screen here. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. So the people are singing and dancing with songs of joy. Why? Because David did what? He struck down Goliath, the Philistine, the great enemy of the people of Israel. And so they're singing with shouts of joy. Psalm 21. When David, David is speaking in third person of God's king. So he's speaking of himself. You make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So David talks about God's presence being where he finds joy, but then he speaks of what God's presence does. He says, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. God and his protection and victory are reasons why, God ha- or why David has joy. Or you could go into Isaiah chapter 35, and Isaiah prophesies a day when sin and enemies are going to be defeated. I don't have that on the slide, so I'm going to read it to you. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Why is there joy? The reason why there's joy is because sorrow and pain is gone, but additionally, not just sorrow and pain are gone, they're home with the Lord. And that's why sorrow and pain have gone, because God is always victorious over his enemies. And then we get to one of, if not my favorite, verse in the entire Bible. This would be a verse, if I were to have a tombstone, this is what I would want on the verse, or on the tombstone. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why? Why do I love that verse so much? You make known to me the path of life. Now, in this life, we all experience temptations, right? And all that temptation ever wants to do is to promise you deceptively pleasure. I promise you, you'll get joy from this. I promise you, you're going to get this. I promise you. And this verse here, no, no, no. Where is life? God, you make known to me the path of life to be in your presence, to abide with you, to commune with you, to know you. That's life. And where there is life is fullness of joy. The temptation promises joy and lies. God promises joy and you will receive You will, and it's not just a temporal surface joy. It's a depth of joy that can come to secure you and comfort you in the midst of even the pains of this life all until the day 
we're able to see God face to face and really experience his presence fully where there will be joy forever. What we see in these verses is how joy is related to God's victory over the enemy and that God himself is the summation of joy. And joy is not, joy is not defined by our feelings. Our feelings come as a result of reality that is joy-giving. The enemy is defeated. People are set apart to God. Now, that's Old Testament. We transfer into the New Testament. And when I was studying this Bible dictionary, he said, in the New Testament, joy is still closely associated to victory. However, the victory focuses more on eternal salvation. Maybe many of you recall the scenario where Jesus was sending out his many disciples, not just the 12, the 72. And he sent out the 72 disciples to go and witness to him. And he sent them out two by two, so you have 36 teams. And then the 36 teams come back and they report on what happened on their journeys. And Luke tells us, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, there's victory, right? Victory over the enemy, the demons. They're subject. And then do you remember what Jesus' response is to these disciples? Jesus affirms that he is victorious over Satan. But then he says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There is something to have greater joy in. Why should the disciples rejoice? Because they are completely secure. In Jesus Christ, no matter what happens. <laughs> this truth is emphasized later on in Luke 15, when the religious hypocrites are grumbling about Jesus, and they, they, they're grumbling because Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and notorious sinners. And then Jesus asks them, which one of you wouldn't rejoice if you found a lost sheep of yours? And clearly, all of them would. And then Jesus goes on and says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What's astounding to me, and I think to, it should be astounding to all of us, is that the way Jesus is speaking, he says, Who would not have joy in finding their lost sheep? There's joy in heaven when one sinner repents. Whose joy is that? God's, the Father. It's not just there's joy in heaven nebulously. God is delighting in, rejoicing in the reality that he is victorious over our greatest enemies, sin and death, our own sinfulness. And God delights rejoices so that then all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Just one. God is victorious, not just over the temporal, these circumstances in this life. 
He's victorious eternally. And so Jesus emphasizes the reality of him being the source of this joy. Many of us are involved in discipleship groups, and so we're going through the book of John, and we've already gone through the situation with John the Baptist and how, you know, John the Baptist had a great following, and then many of those people ended up following after Jesus. But then John's disciples are saying, hey, whoa, like Jesus has more people. What's going on? And they, they communicate as though that should be, that should hurt John the Baptist. Like, what? Jesus, you can have your group. Let me have mine. But do you remember what John the Baptist's response is? You yourself bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Why does John say his joy, his joy is complete? It's because his joy was not wrapped up in the circumstances. His joy was not wrapped up in how many people are going to listen to him in a given time that he's talking in front of the river or how many baptisms he's accomplished. His joy is in Jesus And he gives an illustration to emphasize how this just makes sense that this would be the case. He gives a wedding illustration. He's like, the friend of the bridegroom is encouraged for the bridegroom. You know, in in the ancient culture, there was in some ways a higher focus on the bridegroom and his traveling to the bride's house. In our day, we gather together in you know, a building like this maybe, and, and we focus a lot of our attention on the bride. Okay, we can still get the illustration even though there's clearly differences. Let's just imagine that there's a wedding here. I'm sitting down in the midst of this and uh, I'm talking with a, a couple of you and we're laughing, we're having a good time and everything. And then all of a sudden, those doors in the back close and I'm still talking, and then the door opens, and the bride comes up to the door. Now, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to stand and focus on her, right? What if, instead of doing that, you all stand, and I go, whoa, 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 I was still talking. I got a story to tell. You shut your mouth. This is awkward now, right? Because you didn't come to the wedding to see me. I shouldn't have come to the wedding to see me either or to just hear my voice. And John is saying with Jesus, it's all about Jesus. And I have told you it's all about Jesus. And I told everybody else it's all about Jesus. And guess what? There's a lot of people over with Jesus, which makes me supremely joyful. And so John says, John says he must increase. Now John is not, I don't believe John is saying this. Well, okay, he must increase, he must increase, he must increase, he must increase. And I must decrease. Okay, I got to do that. No, it's, I love Jesus. Jesus is my joy. So he must increase. 
I must decrease. Isn't that joyous? That's how John the Baptist thinks. That's how his joy is complete because his focus is on the bridegroom and the bridegroom is his friend. As I say this, now I want to bring this reality deeper into our hearts because we're talking about Jesus' advent, his coming 2,000 years ago, and how he is actually the foundation, the source, and the culmination of joy. When we look at the Old Testament, joy associated with victory. The New Testament, joy associated with victory, but not just any victory, the victory that only God can give because he himself is joy. What I believe that the scriptures reveal to us is that Jesus is the joy for the longing heart and the longing creation. Now, even as I say this, you know, I I think we all recognize many Christmas songs state this. You know, we have a lot of Christmas songs that have words like rejoice, joy to the world, hallelujah, and then we get the really fancy ones with gloria, right? It's all happy, at least that's how we perceive it, happy, joy, hallelujah. And then we look around our world, and there's a lot of problems, right? I mean, David mentioned it in the call to worship this morning. Anybody want to take a flight to Israel? No way. There are problems in this world. And some people could tend to think, you know what, Christmas is just a time for people to ignore reality. I mean, this this past Thanksgiving, uh, I watched with my family the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. And in the midst of that Thanksgiving parade, one of the commentators said something like, you know, Christmas is a time where we need to lay down our differences and get together and just have peace with one another. And I found it to be actually quite ironic that a news commentator was the one saying that. Because sometimes I feel like the news commentators are perpetuating the divide (laughs) even more. But, you know, that's kind of the sense that we get in Christmas time, just... Just put it aside for now. Just ignore. Let's have little peace treaties and, you know, open gifts, laugh, have fun. And then, you know, we can argue in January. But some people, I think, will even go so far as to, like, think that Christians, like, you Christians are just ignoring reality because you're saying, you're, I, I'm saying Jesus is the joy for the longing heart. And there's a lot of not joy in this world right? And Jesus came 2,000 years ago. So what's the deal? There's still problems here. Like I said, you can look in Israel or you could look at a poverty-stricken country like I went to last year with Sierra Leone. We're in Sierra Leone. As of last year, I was told, I think it was since COVID, they've experienced 150% inflation. And they were already in poverty before. You look around at this world and there are problems. And we could come into Christmas time and you have, you have problems, right? You have struggles that you have. Are you to ignore reality because it's Christmas time? We could be tempted to think that at best Christmas is to ignore our problems. At worst, God is mocking humanity. 
But like I stated a few weeks ago, in one of the illustrations, if we look above the loom, or if we have God's perspective on all things, then we can actually see Jesus is the joy for the longing heart and the longing creation. So I'm going to break this up, the longing heart and then the longing creation, and cover this briefly. See, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, I'd say that Adam and Eve lived in a state of joy. There was no enemy. So they lived in delight, and then the enemy came in. The serpent came in. And the serpent won, and he deceived Eve, and Adam went right along with her. And in the enemy winning, joy left. They experienced separation from God because of their sin, and all creation fell into brokenness due to sin's entrance. But God brought forgiveness and promised that there would be a serpent crusher to come, a seed of the woman who would one day bring deliverance to humanity and all of creation. Now, as Moses writes Genesis, and as Genesis continues, he writes with this longing of the victory of the serpent crusher, and we see how in different scenarios, God defeats the curse by bringing children through women who couldn't have children. He continues the genealogy. We see how God continues to bless sinners and overcomes the curse. And you get these ideas that the enemy is going to be defeated. Then, of course, we move out of Genesis and into Exodus, and we read of Egypt, and it's crushing while God rescues the Israelites. And then God brings Israel into this promised land, and God promises to defeat the enemies. And in the midst of these battles, there's joy and praising, there's rejoicing when the people trust and obey the Lord in the battles. All these physical things are to point to a greater battle of the serpent crusher. Do we understand that? Those are just small pictures of the greater reality. We need a king who can conquer all the enemies. And the Old Testament refers to him as Messiah, the anointed one, the ruler who's going to set people free from their sin and set the creation free from the curse, who's going to reconcile people to God. Now, once we get to King David who pictures and points to the Messiah, we're we're able to enter into David's mind and how how he views um, the Lord and his relationship with him by reading the Psalms. Earthly victory, David reveals, earthly victory isn't the ultimate point of God. Joy isn't found in whether King David defeats a army. And so David writes in Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death. David's talking about himself. And all people. Salvation is not found in these things. We can so quickly think it is. And for us in our culture, we're not thinking, oh, the war horse, (laughs) I have salvation. For you, it's, I have a great savings account. I have whatever it is that you fill up and say, that's my salvation. And I'm happy, I'm happy when that is all secure and right and good. And you interpret that as joy. That's not 
because it won't save you. But what David says is, the Lord is salvation. He's the one that actually can deliver us from death and goes on and says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. This word for glad is actually the Hebrew word for rejoice. He rejoices in who? Who? God. He is the salvation. He is the rescuer. He's the only one. He himself is the steadfast love and hope. So King David raises our eyes above the temporal into the eternal glories. He reminds us that, yeah, this world is cursed. The world is broken, but God has promised the serpent crusher. God will right all wrong. And that reality ought to compel us. I want to put all this together and ask you a question or a couple questions. What type of joy do you want? Temporal or eternal? Just think about it. Practically speaking, then, do you live for temporal joy or on the basis of your eternal joy, a state of joy in God and his promises because we know God is victorious, right? Has God won? Is God going to win? So you can have joy in that and in him or you can constantly waver on the basis of your circumstances and wonder, is God for me or is he against me? And why is this happening and why is that happening? Or, I am loved in Jesus Christ. I have God. Jesus' advent 2,000 years ago was God's declaration that joy has come and is going to reign. That's what Mary said when she knew she was pregnant. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Do you know another translation of the word blessed? Happy. And it's not just the temporal happy, it's a state of happiness. And so she says, she's blessed. And it goes on to say, for he has looked, oh, I'm sorry. What she said in verse 47, if you noticed, my spirit rejoices. My spirit rejoices. Now, question for you on this one, did Mary have an easy life? Some of you are responding. Let me just see everybody. Head nod. Did Mary have an easy life? Did she even have an easy pregnancy? You know, we we know from at least one of the other gospel writers that people did talk about Mary and where this baby came from. All the way, like it's mentioned when Jesus is in his public ministry. Mary's also going to endure watching Jesus be crucified. And yet... Her spirit rejoices. 
She is blessed. Does trial and joy contradict each other? Can you have joy in the face of trial? Absolutely you can. Because joy is from God. It's in the steadfast reality. And that's what Mary was seeing, the steadfast reality that God, her Savior, has brought the Messiah who's going to crush the serpent. My question, my question for us is, your, is our joy anchored in the eternal or are we drifting around the sea of this chaotic world? And we who live now, we can have greater confidence and joy than people in the Old Testament time. You know, with Jesus' resurrection and his death, we even read of Jesus' example in Hebrews 12, where we're called to run with endurance the race set before us. That's life, this life. Run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Was the cross enjoyable? Because what does it say? He despised the shame. How did he despise, how did he work through that? Because, listen, if I'm going through something that is shameful, I want to run from it, hide from it, do something to get out of it, right? What's the only way that you could endure it? Joy. Do you remember the psalm verse? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's how I live life. That's how we ought to live life. That's how Jesus was able to endure the cross. There was joy set before him. That joy is so great and so grand, so much bigger than just this up here of the iceberg. That joy is so deep he could endure the cross. And that's not just people beating him. It's Jesus taking the wrath that myriads upon myriads of sinners deserve. Jesus taking the weight of hell on himself in the place of sinners. That joy is so great, he would endure that. And the author of Hebrews says, now, for all of you who have trusted in Jesus, you have that joy. And he says, now we are to endure. We are to run in this race because Jesus has given us himself. He has given us his joy. We who trust in Jesus live in a state of blessedness. We live in the reality of joy. Jesus has conquered, and he is conquering. And that should feed every aspect of who we are, including our feelings. Whether we're sad or enduring or hopeful or happy, we have a greater, more foundational joy because our triune God and his promises are secure for us.
and very briefly want to talk about this aspect too. Because I think a lot of times we can focus on Jesus being the joy just for us individually. But the reality is, is that Jesus came to conquer all the curse. And all of creation is under the curse as well. Jesus is victorious over creation's curse. I mentioned a few weeks ago that the song Joy to the World was not written to talk about Jesus's first advent. It was written to talk about his second advent, his his coming again. And I just love these words. Can, Can you imagine hearing God say this? No more let sin or sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. No more. It's all done. It's all, what a glorious day. Truly joy to the world. The Lord has come. The Lord is coming. Because that means Jesus has exerted all of his power for the victory over all enemies of sin and of death and decay and brokenness. Someday that's what it's going to be. And Jesus' first coming promises the second coming. We see this as the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church and puts together our longing with creation's longing. Not only creation longs, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. When those of us who trust the Lord see Him face to face, we will be changed. Our bodies will be changed. And then the Bible says that creation will be transformed when we have that adoption. And then Paul says, in this hope we are saved. Now, we talked about hope. I mentioned these verses when I preached on hope. It's a steadfast assurance. It's really going to happen. Now, why do I bring up hope verses when we're talking about joy? If you remember, when I preached on hope, I gave you, I encouraged you to memorize one verse. And I don't know if anybody did. If you didn't, I would encourage you again. Because Paul later on connects joy with hope, steadfast assurance in which joy lives. Remember the verse? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. All those things happen at the same time. Tribulation. I'm in the midst of trials. Rejoice in hope. That hope is secure. Satan can't steal that joy. Did you know that? You know, it's not just God saying that I'm probably going to win. Right? Right? Jesus wins. So rejoice in that hope. And be patient in the tribulation and in the midst of all of that. Continue to pray. We have our God with us in the midst of this life, and he hears us. It was very intriguing to me that this past week, 
I was studying for this sermon, and I, was, I personally was extremely encouraged by the reality of joy. And then the next day, multiple things went wrong. Uh, something with our car, and that took me hours to work through. I got a sermon to write, people. Car, stop it. I have sickness in our home. And then over the course of those next two days, we discover two of our children have broken bones. How does that happen? Just sit down, you know? We have doctor visits, urgent care visits, all these different things. I am so grateful to the Lord that I studied on joy. I really am. It's stuck in my mind in the midst of all those things that were happening. Now, I pray, I pray that this message of joy continues to stick and anchors more deeply within my soul and within our souls. Joy is not ignoring reality. It's saying Jesus is victorious. He is victorious over all the brokenness. And we're going to see him someday. Jesus came 2,000 years ago and is guaranteed to come again. If you have Jesus, you have joy. Because Jesus is the joy of the longing heart and the longing creation. So joy to the world. The Lord has come and is coming again. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Hallowed be your name. May you be gloried in and loved and savored by us. And I pray, God, that you, by your Spirit, would enable us and enable us to truly rest and rejoice in who you are and in your promises. In the midst of the circumstances that we go through, I pray that our sights would be set on things above so that even while we weep, we can rejoice. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So stand and hear these words of blessing. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Amen.